We are going to be in Philippians 2 this morning, and I'm going to start out again on verse 14. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. How you guys been doing on that? Talked about that the last couple of weeks. Am I going to preach on it again today? Maybe I should, but I'm not going to. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like the stars and as you, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Now, I've concentrated in the last couple of weeks on just a, a, a couple of things in there. And, and we've talked about that over the last two weeks. And again, I'm not going to re-preach that. But I've also missed a couple of things in that scripture. So I wanted to go back and just point out a couple of things. This idea of holding firmly to the word of life. I had to go back to a, tup, a couple of different translations here. Because one translation, it's like holding out. And another translation is holding on to, like pulling it forward, okay? So it's like, which one is it? And then I read this week about a kid who fell into a lake while ice skating, right? I don't know if you read about that or saw that story on the news. And I couldn't help but notice the officer was trying to rescue the kid. And at first, what did they do? Did they just run and take off their, their, their duty belt and, and shed the vest so they could dive into the water and they wouldn't sink and grab the kid? No. They got a rope out, and they put a rope on shore. And I've seen this a couple of done a couple of, Sometimes if there's a tree around, they will tr tie it onto the tree. But the idea is they need to hold on to something as they hold out their hand to rescue the child. That's exactly what we're talking about here. The, whole, the idea is to hold on to the word of God while also holding out the word of God to the masses, to the people that are out there. That's what our lives represent. So it's both on that. We got to hold on to Jesus while we hold out our hand to a drowning world. Paul goes on and says, as you hold out the word of life, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ, did I not run or labor in vain? And I love this. Paul is saying, I want my life to count. How many of you feel like that? You want your life to count. Okay, there's several in here that have, they don't want their life to count whatsoever, okay? We all want our life to count, right? And he says, but even, in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So what's going on here? Paul is at a point where he's dealing with his own mortality. He's getting older, he knows his time is coming, and eventually he says he will be sacrificed to the Lord. In fact, he writes this, then he writes First and Second Timothy, and within a couple of years, he's actually martyred for the word of God, for God himself, for Christ, for his king, and he's going to be killed for his faith, and it's like he's being poured out as a drink offering. He's speaking both to Jews and to Greeks here. 
We know that in Philippians, there was a contingent of Jews that had become Christians. But we also know there was a ton of Greeks. Remember, this was a, a kind of retirement community for, for Roman soldiers and, and those that, you know, that knew Greek and all that kind of stuff. So he was really speaking to both. Uh, and they could understand this concept of pouring out, especially for the Jews. You have to go way back to Leviticus to find out about drink offerings. Now, I've already mentioned today Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Imagine that twice in a sermon, you know? But you have to go back and think about it. Um, during harvest time, an animal would be sacrificed as a thank you to the Lord for the Lord's provision for our lives. And then as they were doing that, they would take some of the very first harvest of the grain and they would throw grain on top of that that was being sacrificed to the Lord. And the very last thing, at the very last moment, they would pour out the best wine that they had onto the sacrifice as it was burning for the Lord. They're giving the Lord their best. So you might be connecting with, with this, with, with Jesus and the idea of communion, and this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, but Jesus in the New Testament was poured out as an offering. The wine represented Christ. Our communion time with God really starts in the Old Testament time. So Paul is saying to them, I am mixing my sacrifice, the animal that's sacrificed, okay, and, and, and then you have the grain sacrifice, and then you have the wine on top of that. I am mixing myself with your sacrifice to make a su superb sacrifice. This is what's called a pleasing offering to the Lord, to make it better, you know, make it a better offering. And I found it kind of interesting. Paul is writing to the Philippians where, again, most were Greeks, and most of them didn't have Jewish roots. They had pagan roots. But they could still understand this concept. They were polytheistic. Now, what does the word polytheistic mean? It means worshiping anything and everything, okay? I can worship the God of the ground. I can worship the God of the tree. You know, I call the sun a God. I call the wind a God. I call the ocean a God. But we all know it all comes from the true God, God himself, the creator of everything, okay? But they just worshiped everything. So they were called polytheistic. But they also gave offerings to their little gods, as we call them. Now, we know these gods didn't exist, but they made offerings to them which was interesting, uh, or what is interesting, is they would sacrifice and say, please, 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 please bless us because we're sacrificing. What's interesting is for the Jew, the Jew is not saying, please, please, please bless us. They're saying, thank you for blessing us. You see the difference, the contrast between the two? They would have understood that Paul is being poured out and a thanksgiving offering to God. And this is great. Your sacrifice and my sacrifice put together makes a better sacrifice to the Lord. Paul is being poured out. My life is being poured out. And it's worth it. Now this week we're going to start in chapter 20 or, or verse 25. Paul goes on and says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, 
And that's always a fun, fun uh, you know, biblical word to try to say, you know, a guy's name. How would you like to be called Epaphroditus? You know, everybody would just slaughter it, right? So here's the guy that they send to Paul. You might remember it was a long way to travel to Rome from where Paul is at. Now, today, it's really easy to get there, okay? You just hop on a little plane, and in about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, you were there from where Paul is. But that's not the case for Paul. He's having to, you know, travel over land. He's having to go in boat, and he gets in a shipwreck. I mean, all these th- different things. I mean, uh, to travel to Rome, it's like way over there to get there. So Epaphroditus came to Paul. But Paul sends him back because he got sick. Something happened along the way, and he got sick. And Paul says in verse 25, but I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary to send back Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not, only, uh, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him, you may be glad, and I may, be less ang- I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help for you yourselves could not give me. Paul is saying, welcome this guy back into the fold. Maybe Epaphroditus feels like a failure here. You know, kind of like the whole, it kind of reminds me of the whole John Mark thing, you know, situation. Paul is going on a trip, and John's like, hey, I want to go, I want to go. Can, can I go, can I go? I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And Paul's like, finally, stop bugging me. Okay, you can go. Okay, it didn't quite happen like that, but you could imagine something along those lines. And then John goes with Paul and Barnabas on this trip, and then John ends up getting homesick, and he leaves. The next time when they go, what does Paul say? I'm not taking that little guy. <laughs> Forget him. John, you're staying. And it caused a problem between Barnabas and John and, and, and that whole kind of split thing. And it, on his deathbed, they, you know, Barnabas and, and John came back together and reconciled. But that kind of reminds me, it's almost like Paul learned from that. And Paul is going, you know what? This guy, he's kind of distressed right now. He's wondering how he's going to be accepted back to you guys because, you know, he's not doing what you ask him to do. But he is honored. Uh, He should be honored. You should honor men like this. He risked his life. And the Greek here means he did not regard his life as important. This is like a gambling word, okay? In the Greek, it means he took it like, like a roll of dice, okay? I'm not really into gambling and all that, but, you know, you just take it and go, okay, I'm just going to go for it here. He gambled his life for the Lord. And Paul says, you should honor this man. He took a chance to go see Paul. He took a chance to go help his friend. And most likely, uh, he took a chance on becoming a Christian to begin with. His name is not even a Jewish name. Most likely, he took a chance, and the rest of his family is probably looking at him going, 
I don't know what's going on with you. You're following this cult thing. You're following this Jesus thing. Isn't, isn't that going away? Didn't they kill him? Oh, but he rose from the dead. And they just think he's wacko. <laughs> when you take a chance, it's an amazing thing. Some of you understand the idea of being accepted by Christ or that the only one in your family is, uh, that has accepted Christ and the rest of your family thinks you're crazy, right? You've rolled the dice. Or going on a mission trip overseas that they just can't understand. I mean, last year we had five of us that went to the Philippines, you know? To risk yourself, your talent, your time, your energy, your money on these things. I tell you, when I went to Angola, Africa, we went in the middle of a civil war. Now, they weren't fighting in the area that we were going to. But why did, why did I go? I had no clue. I just knew that the Lord put it on my heart. You need to go. And beforehand, I'm thinking, Lord, why do you have me doing this? And a couple of members of my family, I mean, they were just like thinking, you're an idiot. You're crazy. You're rolling the dice in a sense. Have you ever had family talk to you about, you know, like that? Have you ever had family go, go, man, how much money do you give away to the causes the Lord asked you to give away to? Some of your family probably looks at you and goes, what are you doing? That? You're just wasting that. I mean, we collected a lot of money to go to the Philippines last year, and we'll do it again this year. Um, and you know what? It changed lives both spiritually and physically over there. And it changed lives of those who went on the trip also. It was an amazing thing. There's an idea in this world that says, hoard it all. Let me take it. Let me gather it. It's all about me. And the Lord says, you know what? I want you to start thinking of others. I want you to start serving me. I want you to start doing these things that I'm calling you to do. But the reality is, it's not really a big risk to follow Jesus. It's a risk not to follow Jesus. Because we have an assurity of where we're going after we die, but the world does not. And in the middle of it, when you're making the choice, sometimes it feels like a big risk to allow someone else to control your life. I don't like to be out of control just like you don't like to be out of control. But... The world says it's crazy to allow the Lord to control our lives, control the way we work, control the things that we see, the people we hang out with, even to the point of the people that we married, or the, the movies that we go to, the TV shows we watch, and the world would be like, why does that make a difference? I mean, there's movies that, that my son Grayson wants to go to, and I'm like, no. You know, Brandon's old enough to understand. He's like, I don't want to see that. That, no. But Grace is like, oh, but it looks so cool. And I'm just like, but that's a total different concept of what we believe. And I don't want that to be in your mind. The Lord controls us. The world says it's crazy, but we actually know better. We know it's a risk more to control ourselves. You know, it's more of a risk for yourself to be in control of your life. How many times have you been right this past month? 
How many times have you been wrong this past month? Oh, but we don't want to think about that, right? We call the wrong, we call that sin. And praise the Lord, God forgives us when we ask for forgiveness. When's the last time you've asked for forgiveness? See, we have a part of that, okay? You think you're doing right and then come to find out, oh, I was wrong on that one. And it's more of a risk to allow ourselves to be in control. But sometimes it feels like a gamble. But, you know, like I said, I'm not into gambling, but I'm telling you to gamble on this one. Because when you win, you win big with the Lord. So if you're going to gamble, gamble on God. If you allow him to take control of your life. Remember the first time you walked? Anybody remember? Okay, maybe not, you know. Our memories don't go back that far, you know. I love little kids. You need to know little kids, and I can tell you stories about Brandon, but he's getting too old and he's into sermons, so I can't tell stories about him anymore as much. But um, uh, it was like when Grayson first learned to walk. It was cool because he's stumbling along, right? He's falling over, and we're like, oh, come on, get up, get up, get up. And he's, you know, grabbing everything he can. And, and then finally he gets to a point where he's old enough, right? And he's like coming up to a curb, you know, coming up to the curb. And he does this. And we're like, oh, even though it's a seven-inch drop, right? It's a seven-inch drop, but we're all excited because he's a little kid. And he's, he's just, he's learning. And we're just, you know, it's just a blast. And we do this with the Lord sometimes. We turn around and go, what'd you think, Lord? What'd you think? And God's just trying to give us that encouragement. And the angels are over there doing just like the adults are doing, right? The angels are over there going, oh. Alan, it was a seven-inch curb. Come on. But God's sitting there going, go, Alan, go, Alan. That's what it's like in our Christian faith. God's like, that is awesome. You gambled and you won. And that's what it's like when we follow Jesus. All our possessions, all the things that we think we want to have, which are a lot, right? It all goes away. I got some friends of my parents. They're, they're moving out of their, uh, their uh, they were our neighbors, and then they moved to the same neighborhood my mom moved to. to and, uh, you know, later on in life... And they're fixing to move. I, I'm not quite sure because I follow on Facebook, so I don't have all the details. But they're fixing to move either in with family or into some type of retirement place. But they have this big, beautiful house. And they're selling all their stuff for pennies on the dollar. They're sitting there going, I don't need it anymore. You can't take it all with you, right? All our possessions will go up in the smoke one day or get sold at a garage sale or we'll give them to our kids. But when we gamble on Jesus, it's awesome. We gamble on Jesus, and our reward we get to take with us because we're going to be rewarded in heaven for the things that we do for God here. And that is an unbelievable encouragement when we think about it. Let's move on to chapter, uh, chapter 3 here. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters... Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Safeguard in the Greek is the word aphale. A means not. And phale means stumble, trip, or fall. 
So the safeguard is you're not going to stumble, trip, or fall, right? If you rejoice in the Lord, then you will not trip and fall as much. If you rejoice in the Lord, you won't stumble, uh, stumble as much. You won't sin as much. I'm not saying you're going to be sinless, but you'll think about the things that you're doing before you do them, so therefore you're going to sin less. You won't be sinless, but you'll sin less. If we focus on God and what he wants for us, when we, you know, and when we do this, when we rejoice in him, when we rejoice in the Lord, our focus is on him, and we do less stumbling, right? Verse 2, it says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh now, who, who is Paul calling dogs here? Now, let's make it, let's make it clear. I know that Pam over here has a, a cute, little, beautiful dog, right? And you love your little dog, right? We're not talking about Pam's cute, little, fluffy dog. Okay? We're talking about packs of dogs, disgusting, wild, homeless dogs, dangerous dogs that threaten anyone they come across. They attack anything. And they just, you know, they just mass around you. We're talking about a group of dogs. I've had some experience with this when I was in Greece on a mission trip. Our leaders were, were taking us around and they wanted us to take us on this hike. This is when I was skinnier. Um, and I went on this hike with them. But there was, you know, our group was going along and our, they were going so fast. I mean, they're like running through Athens. We're like, wait, we don't walk this much, you know? And so we're trying to catch up and our group kind of gets split up. And then the group really gets split up when a pack of dogs surround the other group. I mean, there was about seven of them and there was about 20 dogs that got in between us. And literally, they were scared for their lives because these dogs were ready to attack. And I came back for them, and luckily, there was other people around. We were able to get the dogs away from them, and they were able to come on, okay? But for a Jew in the first century to be called a dog, this is the worst insult that you could give. Think of the worst thing that you've been called. Okay, maybe not. You know, don't go there. But this is what Paul is saying here. In fact, it's almost like a cuss word that Paul is using here. I'm not saying he was cussing. I'm saying it's right on that edge, okay? These are frightening words. The Jews called non-Jewish people dogs, wild packs of good-for-nothing animals, non-believers who are against the Lord. And yet, look at what Paul says here. Verse 2, watch out for these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, whom, boost, uh, whom boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. He brings up circumcision, uh, circumcision here. He's talking about a certain group of Jewish Christian community. 
So he's not even talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the Jews here who are called the Judaizers. And there were Jewish Christians who taught and believed that because Jesus was Jewish, and since all the disciples were Jewish, then Christianity was a Jewish thing. So therefore, you had to become a Jewish Christian. So if you were Jewish, you kept doing the sacrifices. And all those things, you know, the next step was to, to believe in Jesus. Okay, that's good to accept him into your heart. But if you were not Jewish to become a Christian, you had to do certain things. A couple of things are really cool. But if you study the Jews and emulate some of the, the things that they do, you could really learn and celebrate from the victories of the past, right? We ought to know where the menorah comes from. We ought to know what Hanukkah celebrates, because that's part of our heritage if we're grafted into the Jewish faith. So technically, we become Jews when we become Christians. Think about that for a second. That'll blow your mind, as, as my son would just go, you know. And some people, that freaks them out, but it's true. We ought to know the Maccabeans and their struggle, because it's our history. And as Christians, we're adopted into that. Let's not ignore it like, like a lot of us have. We need to understand where Jesus came from, especially when it comes to Passover. It's awesome to understand the Old Testament Passover and everything and how it relates to the New Testament Passover and how we apply that to our lives. It's very important. It's not a bad idea for, for those who follow Jew, uh, Jesus to really learn and understand the Jewish faith. I'm not saying become Jew, you know, uh, when it comes to the legalistic faith, I'm saying to understand them. Now, we can't do that with any faith. <laughs> we have to compare everything to the word of God and see what it says, right? So you can't take Islam and learn about Islam and no, 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 no. Okay, that's not the way it works. However, the Judaizers said that you had to become totally Jewish now, I'm not going to go into detail here, but for men who were not born Jews, yeah, that involved a lot of pain, let's just say, okay? No one likes to talk about circumcision, right? But according to Levitical law, a Jewish baby that was born, a boy, on the eighth day, regardless of whether it was a Sunday or not, so the priest got to work on Sunday when it came to, to this issue, this is how important it was. Remember, this is first century again. They didn't have a lot of anesthetics, so this would have been a big deal for an adult man, right? This is why Paul was so hot under the collar. They're convincing men to go through this just because they accepted Jesus into the life and they said, you have to do this to be accepted by God. This is Christians being fed the wrong thing and led the wrong direction. Several years before this, they'd already solved this issue. And if you have time, go back to Acts 15. Um, you know, you can read that some Jews came from Judea to Antioch, and, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you were circumcised by the, cus, the custom that was taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They were trying to add to God's grace. It's kind of a, a modern-day motto of, of no pain, no gain here. So these Judaizers were adding to the tradition. But the scriptures say that what? God's gift is a free gift to us. 
We don't have to do anything but accept the gift. It's impossible for them to lay this issue aside, though. And, and you know, it was a way for the Jews to really remain in control of Christianity at the time. And for humans, nothing is worse than get, you know, feeling like you're out of control, right? When's the last time you felt like you were out of control? Was it when your wife or husband was driving? I mean, okay, maybe not go there, okay. But Paul was saying that grace and faith is enough. So for four years, this debate has raged, and Paul thought it was safe, uh, I mean, uh, soft, and, and Paul was getting tired of it. The controversy has been around the church. But once controversy comes up within a church, you need to look at it scripturally. Once you go into the Bible and see what the Bible says about these subjects, you deal with it and move on. You don't stay in the same controversy. That just divides people, Right? There's nothing worse than Christians fighting over idiotic things. Nothing worse than that. For the church and for the rest of the world to see that within a church. Because what they're doing is just splitting people apart. Paul also could not afford to allow Christianity to become legalistic. The Jewish faith became legalistic because the Pharisees were among the Jews. Legalism is just as much of a threat of, to Christianity as sin is. We try to print out our rules of Christianity and worship, and we try to put these things onto other people. This is really how you should worship. It's got to be my way or the highway. And really what that is is bondage. I did it this way, it worked for me, so therefore you need to do it this way. This is like the older, oldest kid syndrome, right? How many of you have an older brother or sister? Younger brother or sister? Okay, sibling? Okay, anyway. So you know what I'm talking about. And if you're the younger, you've heard this. The parents were really tough on the older ones, and the older ones are like, I can't believe he's getting away with that. Unbelievable. I didn't get to do that. Legalism is a lot like that. It's a lot about insecurity. It's kind of interesting. The oldest always you know, got more inheritance in the scriptures in the Jewish community. I think it's because you know, they needed a therapy fund, but that's a whole other story. You know. But Paul tells us to be secure in Jesus. Judaizers are just saved Pharisees. And they were kind of respected guys. And Jesus attacked them. And if you go back to Luke and Mark, you know that uh, you had to become more righteous than a Pharisee, the scriptures say. to get. I mean, you know, these guys, uh, he said you had to be more righteous than a Pharisee to get into heaven. And he was making a point of going, you know what, guys? You can't be perfect. You just can't. It's all about Jesus and accepting him and him accepting us for who we are. The Pharisees were a weird bunch, and, and I'll try to go through this really quick. They, you know, there's several different types. Of, uh, there's a whole di different groups in Pharisees, okay, uh, back in uh, New Testament time. One was a gagging Pharisee, okay? The gagging Pharisees would keep their mouths shut and closed when they were walking around in public. <laughs> because heaven forbid a fly or a gnat or anything go into their mouth that was not kosher. Because if it did, what were they doing? They were on the side of the road going, ah, thrown up. So literally, they were called the gagging Pharisees because you would see them all the time on the side of the road. If something got in, they were sticking their finger down their throat. Now, there was also another group called the bleeding Pharisees. 
Bleeding Pharisees walked around in public with their eyes closed because heaven forbid they see another woman and then have any thoughts that are negative, okay? So they're always running into things, right? They would hit everything. Then there was a group of Pharisees that wore slippers, a different type of shoe on Sunday, okay? It had a um, it had of a, you know, think of our Christmas slippers that the ladies wear. They're all frilly, but they have no sole on the bottom of it. You know what I'm talking about? Just keep your feet warm or something like that. It's almost like a pair of socks in a sense. They wouldn't wear hard-soled shoes on Sundays because heaven forbid they step on a grain of wheat and push it down into the dirt with the hard sole because this would be considered planting. And a planting is a form of work, and you can't work on a Sunday because of the Jewish law. You see how convoluted this all would get, you know? I mean, then we would go on to the spitless Pharisee. They wouldn't spit on the Sabbath. Any other day is fine, but not on the Sabbath, because then you mix water and dirt, and yeah, okay, you can't do that either. And we laugh about this, but in Matthew 23, Jesus was mad at these guys. He was condemning these guys. And Paul is dealing with the same thing in the church. And out of all the religions, only Christianity says that you cannot earn your way into salvation. Every other religion in this world, you have to do something to earn it. But with Christianity, you don't. And our response should be to love him, to serve him, and to serve those that are around us out of love. Not because we must but because we want to, because the character of Christ comes through us and into this world through our actions. Nothing we can do except call on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our King of this life. Nothing we can do will get us into heaven, Paul says. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And now I'm fixing to end here, uh, but uh, I find it interesting. It, it, you know, you know, if if we talked about circumstances, we'd talk about a particular body part, okay? But when the Scriptures talk about circumcision, what does it mostly talk about? The heart. Like we read earlier in Deuteronomy 10. It says here, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belongs to the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 30 says the same thing. It is about our hearts. Paul is saying exactly what Jesus says. He says, give me your heart. And in Greek times, heart meant, you know, mind and heart, your actions, your desires. We worship the Lord when we give him our hearts. Because when we give him our heart, everything else follows, right? Everything. And if you give God your heart, 
your feet will follow. If you give God your heart, your eyes will follow. If you give God your heart, your hands will follow. And it produces great things for the Lord. So I want to challenge you today as we leave today. Give him your heart. And then everything else will follow. Right? Well, I am out of time, uh, time and we are, uh, I think we'll forgo the last song, Tyler. Uh, as much as I love the worship, uh, we're, we have another group coming in. So let's, let us end in the word of God. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we thank you that you gave us your heart, that you sent your son to die for us. We pray that we come to a point in our lives where we understand what your desires are, that your desires become our desires, that we are so in tune with you through the word of, your God, you know, word of, uh, of yours, that all these, these great and mighty heroes of the faith, that they wrote so many wonderful things, that we impart that upon ourselves, that we take that, digest it, and it produces wonderful energy for this world. We pray that our heart follows you, Lord. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine down upon you. And may it always turn towards you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful day.